Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Growing for Market magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author, Lynn Bozinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier. By farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here, personally. Today's show is also brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friend's growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm, and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. Today's podcast is going to be a really good one. I get a chance to sit down and talk with Ellen Polishuk from Plant to Profit. She has an illustrious career as a longtime veggie farmer in Virginia who's turned into what is now a farm coach for many other new and established farms throughout the country. She's a self-professed soil fan, frankly, nerd, just like me. And she was more than happy to get giddy and nerdy with me about soil biology during this conversation. And Ellen has some crazy stories to share too. One time she sat in a basement with the likes of John Kempf and Gary Zimmer, 
So she's got a lot to offer us. And I remember how much her knowledge stuck with me after hearing her for the first time as a speaker at the 2014 ASDFG National Conference. So she is full of information. I think we just barely start to tickle all of that out in this um, this particular podcast episode. But I'm very excited about everything she shares today and all that I have a feeling Ellen's going to share with us in the future. So sit back and enjoy this conversation. podcast. I'm so excited to have Ellen Polishuk with me because I've been kind of stalking her a little bit. I have to admit <laughs> so many um, questions about soil biology in particular. Um, Ellen is the um, genius behind Plant to Profit and is a former, well, not, maybe not former farmer, but um, uh, evolving farmer. And she's got a lot of knowledge um, in her pockets that I want to, I want to dig out. So, so welcome, Ellen. I'm so excited to have this conversation. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Jenny. What a beautiful intro. Nice to be uh-huh. here. Well, you come, um, I, I remember seeing you for the first time at the ASCFG conference. Uh, how many years ago now? A while. Um, a while. Listening to your talk there and just coming away so inspired. And that was one of the first um, first talks that actually intrigued me about soil. Prior to that, I think I'd gone to every soil talk and I have had um, soil university soil classes in the past myself and they're all boring as <laughs> as dirt, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and so it was after leaving your talk, I was like, whoa, there's so much more to this than I realized. So that's why I, um, I, I, I put it in the back of my brain then that I wanted to learn more. And since then, I've heard so much good stuff about your work with other flower farmers. So thank um, you. Wonderful story. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff all around. So uh, let's start with why don't you just introduce kind of what you're about, like how you started down your farming path? And then what are you doing now that you've advanced through your soil evolution, I think is what it is. Yeah. Okay. So I I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia in the suburbs. And I now I live in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., which is about the same thing. So I'm still in the same place where I started 57 years ago. And uh, I just was born loving plants. I don't know, it was just a gift that came somehow to me. And uh, so while I had a normal suburban upbringing, I started working on farms when I was 16. Oh, wow. There were actually a few farms that could still be worked on um, in that <laughs> close into in the suburbs, and so that was the very beginning of my vegetable farming practice. You know, getting I wasn't a farmer, but I was a worker, and I was starting to learn. Anyway, I went to ag school eventually, and dedicated decided that I was going to dedicate my life to to agriculture. And um, after a number of experiences where I finally lived in another place. I went to California anyway, came back and I ended up farming with the same folks that I'd worked with as a teenager. Wow. And this time they hired me as a full-time professional grower and they gave me a whole location to farm on my, to farm, to be the boss of. Wow. And so that operation is called Potomac Vegetable Farms. They, they predated my existence and they post-date my time there. And so, um, I helped to transition a piece of property that they'd had and, and used 
on and off from basically growing, you know, 50 acres of sweet corn in not organically into a highly diversified organic vegetable farm. And so wow. that was what I did for 25 years. And that was, um, a, you know, obviously it's like a dream come true, right? For a kid growing up in the suburbs to end up being a farmer full-time permanent. And uh, I, because of the folks that own the farm, uh, the Newcomb family, they're just an alternative thinking, generous spirited people. And they allowed me to become, to earn my way into becoming an owner of the farm, a part owner. And wow. so that was super cool. It's a really great story. And uh, so that was my, the, the chunk of my growing career. And during that time, at some point, and this is, you know, sometimes you look back at those things in your life and you're like, oh, yeah, for a reason. Somehow, like by mistake or in a way that I don't even understand, I got invited to go to a, what was called a soils boot camp Ooh. with Gary Zimmer. Gary Zimmer oh, is a yeah. pretty mm -hmm. famous soil guy. He's yeah. from Wisconsin. He started a company called Midwestern BioAg that sells fertilizer, great bio biological, yeah. organic, organic fertilizers. And he was trying to develop new salespeople for the company in the East Coast. So he was coming from Wisconsin and, and somehow somebody threw my name in the ring and I didn't even really know what I was there for. And I spent four days in somebody's basement with <laughs> at this tiny little card table with like <laughs> 10 of us and Gary Zimmer, like talking soils, you know, 10 hours straight for four wow. days. And There's I was, so many like, people that would love to be in that room right now. I know. And I didn't have to pay them and they didn't pay me, but there we all work. And this is even, this is pretty cool too. And John Kempf was there. <gasps> really? But this was long enough ago wow. that John Kempf was not yet nearly no. as famous as he is yeah. now. So there were two pretty important characters and me and, you know, whatever, eight of us sitting around the table. So that was the beginning of, of my more formal and sort of more intensive training in learning more about how soils work and learning about fertilizers and fertility. Right. And so that opened up this weird little, interesting little envelope, this little chapter. So while I was still farming full time, I started to work with some growers, mostly in my neighborhood, yeah. you know, Barbara Lamborn yeah. at, right. at mm -hmm. Greenstone Fields yep. and Love Farm. you might know just helping them. Like I got all excited about soil testing because now I understood like, why do we care? You know? And, <laughs> right. and so, um, so I was going through having my own epiphanies about how I was farming my farm and what ways I could be doing a better job to increase soil health. And, and I was, I'm, I'm an excited person. And so when I get excited about something, I really want to, I want to share I want to like you. And so, yeah. so I became sort of a, a soil um, fan, you know, like a, like a cheerleader for soil health. And then I started, you know, I'd already been doing some public speaking and working, you know, at workshops and so forth, but this was a whole new topic that then I felt like I could start to share my wonder really and the, and the way, um, and I'm a good talker, you know, I'm good at explaining stuff in a way that non-science people can, can hear it, like it worked for you. Like, oh, that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah. yeah, that's what that was the difference. Yeah, yeah. The fact that you weren't a soil scientist made all the difference for me. I mean, I know you know all about it, but it wasn't like you were coming from a soil science background. It was like you're yeah. a farmer talking about dirt. Well, soil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, and then so anyway, that was evolving this sort of learning more, working with soil testing, working with growers. And then in 2017, I decided to just to stop farming and uh, and pursue a full-time gig working as a coach and and consultant for growers and some of the work is around isn't definitely in soils that's probably the the main way that people come to me is they want somebody to talk about their soil test and tell them what does this mean (laughs) and what am I supposed to do now right exactly Um, and so, yeah, so in 2017, I left the farm and I started this company, Plant to Profit, which, you know, kind of had existed already, but I was making a real stand, like, this is really what I'm about now. And so that's what I do. I work with growers uh, on a one-on-one basis, and I still do workshops, even though now, of course, I have to do them sitting here in my sweatpants at home instead <laughs> of traveling all around the country, which is what normally my winter would be, is going yeah. conferencing. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's my short story of how I got to be sitting here nice. talking to you. Nice. I love it. And for the record, I'm really missing conferencing right now myself. It's like I, I'm looking at a wide open calendar all winter and I'm just really confused. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what to do with it. So Well, maybe you'll have to start your own. Oh, I don't want to do that. I've, just, I've, just I've planned one. conferences. They're way too much work. <laughs> I know enough to know I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. I can't trick you into it. You're too smart. Yeah, no, no. Good try, though. Good try. Okay. So, all right. Well, well, let's dive into some of the questions that I had for you because I've got a lot of them. <laughs> I know. Let's go. Let's start on one of the reasons I actually really wanted to interview you is because I had initially asked you about no-till and you had an an unexpected response, but one that I was really (laughs) excited to see. So basically, originally, um, I asked you about no-till, and you said that you weren't necessarily a a fan of no-till, or maybe the terminology. So let's just start there. Let's talk about no-till, like in in broad strokes. (laughs) Okay. So because I am old-ish, and um, you know, went to ag school and have some familiarity with conventional, regular American agriculture. The term no-till really started there. And no-till farming is the normal way of farming commodity crops in the United States of America. And they're talking about no-till. That's when they're using chemistry. You know, they're using Roundup. That's Roundup, corn, soybeans, and cotton. And that's, those are the folks who, you know, sort of coined the term from the, in the first place. And that's what it really means in the broader world of agriculture. It means killing the, you know, whatever's on the ground with a, a contact herbicide, and then having a special planter that will cut a slit through that residue and put your seed in the ground. So that was the beginning of no-till for reals. Then comes organic people saying, oh, well, let's, can't we do that same thing without using the Roundup? And then comes the Roller Crimper and Jeff Moyer at at, Mm -hmm. uh, Rodale. And and so then that's the organic version of no-till. It's still not really a vegetable crop 
kind of a universe. It's still corn and, and some other commodities. And so that's, for me, that's what no-till really, really, truly means. Now okay. there's a new movement of youngish people who probably maybe don't know anything about that whole story that I'm just right. telling. Because right. they exist in a world that is quite separate from conventional agriculture. And so I've read, you know, I've read Andrew's book and, you know, I'm pretty well um, understanding what the principles are. And, but still to say no till, but I do some tillage, that's the thing where that, that starts to make me crazy. It's like, because okay. no, real, real conventional right. no till meant no tilling. Right. None. Right. Nothing. Not just, oh, I just do the top or I just do it every so often. It was like, never. Right. Never, ever. Right. Which has its own problems. What has resulted from all of the millions of acres of no-till corn and soybeans is compacted soil mm. and not any growth in organic matter. Right. So, because remember what you, what you maybe don't know, because I didn't say it at the beginning, no-till was invented as an erosion prevention. Mm. That was the whole point. The whole point. Yeah. Stop tilling up ground and have it wash it down the hill. Okay. okay. Let's figure out how to grow corn on not flat ground and keep the soil in place. And so that's what it did. They weren't like, oh, this is all about soil biology and right. all this stuff. Like, let's just keep the soil in place, which is a really great goal. Like, right. right? Yeah, yeah. It's but the, it's still a mechanic of big ag. That's a, basically, you know, it was just a, right. a tool in the big ag toolbox. So, okay. Right. So, but if you're going to farm the way the rest, the rest of the farming that they did on top of it did not increase soil organic matter, yeah. even though they'd never tilled. Right. So, right. okay. So that's the, that's the old history stuff. So now there's the, now there's the new guys, the small guys, and they're talking about no till. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to say no, there's not, there's no black and white here. There's right. just gray. Right. And so most people who are talking now, I'm going to only talk about uh, this new version of no till. Okay. okay. Um, they're all doing some kind of, almost all are doing some kind of tillage. And so why don't we just call it something else? You know, why don't we just call it low till or minimum till? Or what I really like to say, and this comes straight out of Gary Zimmer, thoughtful tillage. Meaning you have to really think about that before you go out there, because there's no question that tillage has negative ramifications. You know, has things that happen that are not good. Yeah. There's also good things that happen. And so my teaching and my way of seeing is to till for only for a certain reason. And if you're going to till, you have to mitigate the negative things that have happened. You have to pay for your sins. Mm, That's how I think of it. Like, you know. (laughs) And, and so that means you have to be even better farmer okay. at um, growing really healthy, robust crops with massive root systems. And you have to religiously cover crop over the winter. And maybe you even have to do um, every other year, a complete cover crop system in the summer, summer cropping and give a lot back to your soil yeah. for all the things that you did wrong. Okay. Yeah. So that's, there are scenarios that you 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 really think tillage does need to have happen. Is absolutely is that, okay. 
Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly where I want to go next. Oh, great. Okay. So time <laughs> after time, I have a new grower come to me and they don't know anything about anything much about soil. And so they're like, here's my soil test. And I want to go no-till. I want to be a no-till grower. I'm like, okay. So we look at the soil test and I'm the predominance of my customers are east of the Mississippi. And they give me, we see the soil test and we look at it and it's, you know, it's some kind of a, it, it was in conventional ag or mostly it was hay, you know, it was just a, like an abandoned yeah. field pasture or, or something. Pasture. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was a hay field. And we look at the soil test and we see it's basically empty. Like, and which I, I want to touch back on that. So okay. what we see is no phosphorus, like five to 10 parts per million, which is kind of negligent, you know, it's like terrible, low organic matter, low phosphorus. um, And acid is anything, you know, five, (laughs) 5.0, nowhere near 7.8, which or sorry, 6.8, where's where I want you to go. And they're like, so I want to go no till. And I'm like, well, then you're going to, you have to hire somebody else. Cause I, we can't fix this. We can't get this ground ready for you to farm until we fix it. We got to do some fixing. Right. We got to get your pH where it needs to be. We got to get some phosphorus in that ground and, and that's going to require tillage. We, we don't want it. We're not going to just farm the top two inches. We want to farm. We want those plants to have at least eight inches of yumminess to feed themselves from. Right. And so we need to interact with that whole slice. And that okay. means we're going to have to mix it up. Right. And some of these places, if, like I said, if they were conventional no-till corn and soybeans, are compacted crap right around four inches down. Yeah, that's true. I noticed that about my field. <laughs> yeah. So One of the biggest like, challenges. Yeah. And so how, how are we going to break up that plow pan or that no-till pan is really right. what it is, which mm-hmm. is fascinating that there could be such a thing as a no-till pan, right? Because we it said is. we're not going to till because we don't want a plow pan. Well, now we're not tilling and we have a different pan. Different kind of pan. Wow. Different kind of pan and higher up. Plow pans were more at six to eight. Yeah. Okay. Just from all that compaction over and over again of the big wheels of tractors and equipment yeah okay that makes sense rain oh yeah that's true yeah just the pounding rain yeah so but it's is it the same thing have you ever encountered where somebody's starting the farm on say um like a lawn that had been generally maintained somehow is that you know a lawn that didn't have heavy equipment over and a lot of small-scale flower farmers in particular right now are starting in their backyards essentially you know they still yeah. maybe have a half acre or something back there but but it's just lawn and the most that probably went over it was a lawnmower do you think it's the same case in that instance or oftentimes I see the same thing okay okay uh, under like the soil test just comes back and it's like you you're not going to have success just going rogue you know we gotta and so the the term that i've adopted and again this is this is gary zimmer kind of language you have to earn the right to go no-till that's how i see it okay you need to you need to provide some loving support Mm. and you need to you need to make sure you've got phosphorus you got your ph right you may have a bunch of other nutrients that are missing and you need some air 
most likely. And that's what tillage does. Tillage brings air into the system. And so once you've sort of enlivened your soil, you've mineralized it to some, to either a little or a great degree, depending on, you've brought in um, active organic matter for microbes to chew on and things are starting to happen. Okay, now, maybe now's the time to, to try some new, to, to go ahead and leave that and just till the top two inches or whatever it is, whatever your practice is that you want to have. So a couple, just to, to dig into that then. So a couple questions are, does broad forking do enough tilling? Like not, I mean, broad forking is not tilling, but um, I'm, I'm thinking about some listeners who don't have access to a tiller even, you know, that's one of the, the um, sort of appeals of no-till, I think for especially small small scale flower farmers is that they don't have to buy equipment. Um, and so if they invest in a good broad fork and do a lot of broad forking or maybe even double digging or can, do you think there's other ways besides like actually using a tiller that to break ground in a, in yes. a good way? So here's, here's the, th the, we're having a semantic problem. Yeah. So <laughs> till tillage is any soil disturbance. Okay. So even using a hoe, to kill weeds is tillage. Okay. Using a broad fork is tillage. Using a shovel is tillage. Anything that is sticking something in the ground and moving dirt around is okay. tillage. Okay. Now there's, you know, a million different tools and they all have different sort of modes of action and they have different levels of upset, shall we say, right? And the and sort of the you know, the most frowned upon being the old fashioned mold board plow. Like that's like, wow, that's the worst thing anybody's ever seen as a mold board plow because it actually flips the soil. If you put it in deep, cuts that whole slice and then flips it, over, it over on its head and inverts everything. So most everybody's in agreement. That's not a good idea anymore. But once you back down from that, there's a lot of possibilities and some of them are better than others. You know, a rototiller is problematic because not because it's turning it over, but because it's beating it to crap. It's beating yeah. it to dust. Yeah. So it's the speed at which the times are turning is the issue, not that they're turning. Yeah. I remember so, back when I did till, I was so excited when I could get my tiller really going fast. Like that was like one of the things before I understood anything, I was all like, oh, look, I got it all oiled up and I can just look at her go. She's purring. And now I like look back and I go, oh gosh, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's well, it's pretty core. That's pretty common, yeah. you know, yeah. so don't yeah. feel too bad. Yeah. And you didn't grow up with all this stuff either right I mean uh, I did no I actually grew up on a dairy farm um oh. and but ironic that you should tell that story about um no-till being something completely different because when I told my dad um recently about you know just I'm starting this podcast it's all about no-till farming he was like well I've been no-till farming since I was and I was like you've been no-till farming what are you talking yes. about <laughs> yes. and so like yeah it was that difference of uh, uh it was it, his version of no-till is so different than my version of no-till. And that was a really interesting conversation to have with him. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, yeah, it's just different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's whole conferences, there's whole magazines 
dedicated to no-till agriculture, and but it's not the one you're talking about. Yeah, it's not. They the got there all. first. I say you, you, Jenny, have the power to give us a new word. I, I, I've been toying with this idea of symbiotic farming because for me, farming is all about my 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 farming uh, philosophy and mental space now that I'm not talking about when I started, I wish I had been here when I started, but now is like, I want to, there's so many symbiotic relationships in nature and I watch them every day on my farm and I understand how powerful they are. And I feel like I need to just take a humble step back and just start being one of the creatures that's in a symbiotic loop with the rest of the space. So I am trying to adopt this, this term of symbiotic farming in my brain because I think I like that better than no-till because I, 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 I agree with everything you said about no-till um, in general and then also for me it's not that I'm a no-till farmer it's there's so much more than than, right. than the tillage or the lack of tillage or whatever and I think that's what ultimately is coming to the forefront of so many of these conversations I'm having with other folks on the podcast and otherwise it's it's a lot more than just don't get a tiller out. It's it's about understanding all the life forms in the soil and above the soil and in the air even and all the things. You know, <laughs> how do we all interact together in a in a healthy, supportive way? And it's not just about our human desires. So so for now, I'm sticking to symbiotic farming, but I might toy with. <laughs> yeah, well, and then there's there's such a big push now with the regenerative word, right, which right. all of these things. I mean, it just confuses the heck out of the public. It really that's does. for sure. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it's like just hashtags or catchphrases, and right. and I think as a farmer, I don't want to get too um, caught up in that. You know, I don't want to worry too much about that, but I do find it helpful for myself to have some sort of um, platform word, which sounds funny that you need it, but you know, I need this thing to 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 build from. Um, and regenerative doesn't, for a while I was, I was latched onto regenerative as well. And I was thinking like, oh, this works. But then I was like, yeah, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't quite do it for me. Like, I feel like there's a few issues with regenerative as well. But anyway, that's like a whole philosophical conversation. Yeah. I want to touch, I want to touch back on something that I alluded yeah. to. And because I'm still, you know, I don't, I don't know everything by a long shot, yeah. but I, I know some stuff, but I'm thinking about this, the no till impulse and how strong it is and how uh, attracted it is to a lot of growers. And I just think, you know, I'm on a property that has been, the grass has been here and it's been grass, a field of grass that's gotten mowed for, I don't know, 25 years. And that soil is crap. Hmm. It's, it's, a, it's about four inches on top of rock. And after 25 years of having not a single scrap of organic matter removed, just grass getting cut. Yeah. The soil is not good. It's no good. Okay. It's, it's, it's 5.5 pH yeah. and has no phosphorus. Like you yeah. can't create phosphorus out of thin air. Right. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? And That's that was true. my breakthrough. Right. That, that was my huge breakthrough when I spent that week with Gary Zimmer, because I had always believed up to that point, I was like, compost and cover crops, that's my thing. And I went at it like in serious. And I'm not, I don't want to buy in anything. I want to grow it myself. Now, of course, I was buying in some ingredients to the compost. But anyway, 
what came, what I finally came away with from one of the things was if there's no boron in the soil and you're not, you know, it ha- sometimes things have to come from somewhere else. Somewhere else. Okay. Right. Now there is, it is true that parent material, the rock that your soil comes from is slowly breaking down over time. But dude, we're talking on geologic scale. (laughs) We're talking geologic (laughs) scale. And yes, there are some new minerals available and released in a time period. But we're trying to make a living growing stuff. And we're putting, you know, we're putting a little bit of a pressure on this situation. This is an economic enterprise. Yeah. And that's the, so I just, yeah. So now I think you, you see where I have some stuck places with, with, with people being, having a mantra. Yeah. And then, and I also think we weren't, you know, nature wouldn't have had a, a, a grassy field anyway. Like that's not what nature would have chosen for that space. It's only there. Right. It should be the woods. It. Yeah. It would have just naturally turned into a wooded area, which would be a lot more biologically active ultimately. But so, but I, I think that kind of speaks to the point ultimately is that there's always evolution and change in the soil. Nature would naturally have done her own form of, you know, sort of, um, you know, just going in there and changing stuff with plants, you know, that, that grassy area. So nature would have done that too, um, in a different way. So yeah, we need to tilt to get started. It sounds like. And, um, so to go back to the original question about tillage or, you know, whatever, however you define tillage, um, and somebody's breaking ground. This is, I think, a great conversation for so many new flower farmers that'll probably be listening to this episode. And so, so do it once, or do you have to go in there multiple times to do the tilling and the turning and the mixing and the aerating, or is just doing it once to break the ground and then moving to no-till okay? And it, I'm sure it has a lot to do with what you actually put into it. <laughs> well, it also, mostly I would say it has to do with what are you starting with? Hmm. You know, where are you in the country and what okay. is sort of the core nature of that soil? Is it any good to begin with? Right. You know, basically, if you're in the Midwest, <laughs> chances are better that you're going to have pretty nice ground. Like yeah. that's just geologically like where the good soil is, you know, the, the heartland, some places in California. No, there's pockets all over. But where I am in Virginia and anybody around here, Washington, D.C., Maryland, this ground is just, it's supposed to be a forest. It's supposed to be 5.5 and growing oak trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, um, so it just depends on what you start with. There is right. no one recipe, which is frustrating and awesome. Because if it was just a recipe that you had to follow, then all the creativity and the magic stuff wouldn't be happening. Yeah. So yeah. It depends on the core nature of the soil that you're starting with, both its physicality. What is it physically like? Is it compacted? Is it, has it had drainage problems and it's full of sulfur and weird things? You know, what's, what's the physical, chemical and biological status of the soil at the beginning? And then all the different things that you have that you could do to it, how long will it be before it's good to go? I can't say. Could be, if you're starting off on beautiful soil, could be one year, could be three years, could be three to five if you have crap ground like what is around me and probably similar to you. Yeah, no, that was, that was, um, I I told you already that my experience with no-till was, 
you know, I, I originally was like, yay, I'm going no till. And I, you know, because of the books and the blogs and the podcast and everything, I thought I was going to be, you know, literally skipping through tulip patches with, you know, bunny rabbits behind me with little twinkly stars. You know, I don't know. It just seems so like <laughs> it's going to be so easy and so dreamy and it's going to be this is the way to do it. And no, when I first started and it was probably just my own, like, I think I think you you know, as farmers, we always are looking for that like thing that we missed, so to speak. And so when you latch on to an idea, sometimes you latch on to it too hard. And yes. so I think that's what I did initially. And I, I was just like, okay, I'm going to stop tilling and I'm going to put lots of compost on here and it's all going to go. And then I didn't realize my soil was so dead because I had been tilling for um, almost a decade before I went no-till um, and or low-till. And so um, the biology just wasn't there. And I didn't understand that it's not about, you know, ceasing the destruction of going in there with my tractor and tiller. It's also about you've got to get the biology back. And so that was one of the things I really wanted to talk to you today about just to help to put this out there that if you've got yeah. no till, it's not just stop using the tiller. It's now we have to build biology in the soil and understand what that means. Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. So let's talk about that a little bit. What is, um, yeah. what are your, some of your best ideas for introducing till or introducing biology? You know, there's like bugs in a bottle, there's KNF or Dom, or there's just like add a lot of compost and hope stuff shows up. <laughs> like, yep. what are your thoughts on, on how we yeah. can do So some of my thoughts are uh, to steal from a movie. And that is if you build it, they will come. Remember that movie? Maybe you're old enough. Yeah. No, no, I know. A, I remember that. Yeah. It was the cornfield. It was yeah, Kevin Costner and the corn and the baseball guys. Yeah, baseball right. Field. If yeah. you build it, they will come. And so that's the case. Primarily, that's the case with inviting soil biology to be there. So, and, and again, I'm not going to be against any of those things that you just said. I'm not against bugs in a bottle, KNF, or any other potion that there exists. And I, and I have used some happily. But the primary thing is, there's no sense buying expensive ingredients if you're going to put them in a place where they're not going to live, Right you have to have an environment where biology wants to thrive. And that means 
just like an animal or any other kind of um, breathing being like we are, they need air and water and food. And so that's what I want you to think about is creating an environment where life wants to be. And then it comes. Or if you want to jumpstart it, go ahead and jumpstart it and add some. But the most important thing is to create the environment. So there has to be air, water, and food. What's the favorite food of bacteria is, and, and many uh, other kinds of microorganisms, is the sugar that plants shoot out through their roots, root exudates. That's their favorite thing to eat. It's straight up sugar from the sun. And so that means that having growing plants, and, a, and if you can, a variety of growing plants as many days of the year as possible. That's the best prescription for creating a biologically friendly atmosphere. So that means, you know, quick turnarounds. It may mean, um, you know, we're not growing pasture. So there, we're growing annual crops. And so there's going to be a time in which we have to switch from one annual crop to another. But it's trying to make those, those transition times as quick as possible. And for me, I would use a tiller. So okay. I'm going to, a tilling machine of some kind, I'm going to grow whatever it is, cover crop or green manure or a cash crop. I'm going to grind it up with a flail mower. I'm going to work it in. And then I'm going to plant something immediately the next day. And so that ground is going to have not live roots in it for just a number, you know, a couple, four weeks before new plant is starting to grow. So, okay. so I would say environment is important. It's the most important thing. Things that I've bought that I thought were worth the money. Um, I've, I've been a big fan of using mycorrhizal inoculants okay. on my farm. And, um, and the primary place where I use them, I was a vegetable grower. I did tiny bit of flowers and herbs was in the greenhouse. That's where I would, that's where I would put my power pack because many of our crops were transplanted and I grew all my own starts. And so I put every kind of crazy thing in that greenhouse because a little goes a long way. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's such a concentrated space compared to 20 acres of soil, right. which is where I, what I was farming it was like, okay, I can put azomite in here. I'm going to put some uh, biochar. I'm going to put some, uh, mycorrhizal fungi, I'm going to use a broad spectrum bacteria, and I just put everything in the greenhouse, and then, because then I'm taking that little baby, and I'm going to set it out in the world, yeah. but it's bringing, like, it's, it's all these yummy things with it, right, then I right. give them another dose of a liquid fertility right there at transplant, more mycorrhizal fungi, more bacterial inoculant, more fish, more seaweed, and then, all right, guys, I, I made this soil as nice as I know how I gave, I'm putting you out there with this beautiful vitamin packs and, you know, power bars for your little, you know, this in between time. And then you got to do the rest yourself. Okay. So go get it tiger. So that's, so I love mycorrhizal inoculants. I've nice, loved nice. some bacterial inoculants, but yeah. in, I'm using very small quantities because I'm not trying to address you, 20 acres. Right. I like that. I mean, it's kind of like sending your kid to school with a good lunch pack, you know, like exactly. so they can get through the day. And I think that was one thing that I had to um, 
when I first got more interested in soil life and understood soil life, there was this um, revel revelation for me where it was before we used to just put, I do almost all transplants at my farm. I do very little direct seeding because of my ground is so, you know, it's not that great for direct seeding. Um, and yeah. so I, um, whenever we used to transplant back in the day, I would just be like, oh, we're just going to water them in, make sure they've got enough water. And that was like pretty much all we did when we transplant, you know, there was no extra like boost. And then I started realizing, you know, how incredibly important those first, you know, couple of weeks of that plant's life, how much of a difference that makes to the plant in the very long haul, you know, even if it's, you know, a 120 day crop or whatever, the first right. you know, 20 days <laughs> is like incredibly critical to it. So now we do all sorts of, at my farm, we do all sorts of, um, you know, add stuff to the soil mix when we're doing the transplant, you know, seeding the crop, we soak the seeds in kelp. Um, you know, we also do a lot of liquid, um, uh, we do foliar feeds when we transplant as well to just keep trying to like just inject, inject, Get inject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then once, you know, after like the first two weeks they're in the ground, everything sort of slows down, settles down, you know, in terms yeah. of my like fussing, <laughs> my, yeah. my helicopter mom strategy. <laughs> So, yeah, well, I mean, it just yeah. makes sense. I mean, if you have yeah. kids, right, yeah. they, they come, you got to take care of them for a little while. You know, luckily, these plants only have one year to live. And so two weeks is enough, not yeah. 21 yeah. years. But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there you go. But I want to also touch on the compost. Amendment. Yeah, yeah, please. Let's do. Yeah. And any yeah. other and, sort of way to bring biology in. Yep. And so uh, compost. So let's, let's go back. Um. Soil biology prefers first plant exudates. That's this is the yummiest thing ever. Then there's a kind of another set of, of beings that are the decomposers. And they want, yeah, they'll, they'll eat some sugar, but they also want to chew on organic matter. And that's where we, be, you know, people who are organic farmers, that's where that word comes from. We're organic farmers because we're concerned with organic matter. We want to have a rich, biologically active soil. And that means we there's a constant uh, addition of carbon. And now you have a lot of questions. Well, where is that carbon going to come from? Well, can I grow it myself? Yes, that's called cover crops in the winter. That's called green manures in the summer growing whole crops just to put them in the soil. That's a lot of carbon to work, you know, that's a lot of time and carbon to give to the soil. Or I could put on compost, or I could, and I could be using organic mulches. So instead of all black plastic and landscape cloth, I'm gonna use uh, leaves and uh, hay and straw. So all of those are viable sources, but it gets tricky as to figure out which one is going to work for your system. What kind of tools do you have to put all these things out? They require work. You know, cover crops and green manures are tough for small scale growers who don't have much equipment. Then along comes tarping. And then yeah. it was like, oh, I don't need to have a tractor and a tiller if I have the time and technology to put that tarp on for whatever it is, four plus four-ish weeks. Okay, now all of a sudden that opens up the avenue of, of winter cover crops and summer green manures to even small-scale growers. Most and do you of them think are, tarping works? Like you're, you're, you're like an advocate of tarping that works in your mind? I am... 
I, it seems fine to me. I mean, I don't want to do it. I would never have farmed. I would never have farmed that way. We, we tarp at my farm, but I was worried about in terms of like getting the organic matter back down into the soil and stuff like you had said about flail mowing and, and working it in. Um, but if we don't, if somebody doesn't have a flail mower, you know, it's right. just tarping it, that still does the same thing, essentially. Yeah. What I worry about, I mean, why I don't like tarps is just the, just spending time with them. I don't want, I don't like the way they look. I don't want to deal with them being wet. I don't want to do all the sandbags, like all that, that whole thing just makes me crazy. But that I was, it was okay. I didn't need to. I had a big tractor (laughs) and a spading machine, which is the nicest form of tillage you can have. The only time I worry, quote unquote, about uh, tarping is sometimes I have, I've had a customer or two who want to leave the tarp on for like months and months. Then I think, I don't know what I think about that. Like, I don't have any yeah. data. And yeah. but it just occurs to me as odd. And like, I'm not really sure that's excellent. We did that one time <laughs> um, at my farm because we had this, this what I, I call it the back 40. I mean, it's not that much space, but probably about a quarter acre that had horrible perennial weeds like devil's walking stick and multiflora rose and all these oh, things boy. that just were going to just be a nightmare. And it was either try to get in there with a tiller, which I was like, all I'm going to do is create more of a, of a project if I try to till that all up. So uh-huh. I just decided to throw two giant billboards over them. And um, I left it down for a year. And the entire time I was basically having this huge internal conflict about how much soil life I was killing in the process. <laughs> of leaving these tarps on for so long and you know this and when we took it off all the all the stuff was dead like all the 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 invasive yeah dead but so was the soil so it's been um it's been a year now since it's been uncovered and I've just been working hard with you know cover cropping it and and trying to keep it you know bring it back to life because I did essentially kill everything (laughs) well I'm not sure about that you know I mean it's possible that the soil was not very alive before yeah. you even put the tarp down. Yeah, that's true. It was you know, a wasteland. <laughs> but when you're but when you're dealing with a wasteland and you're dealing with weeds like noxious weeds like that, like is you know, none of the choices are excellent. So yeah. then it's a question of choosing the least bad thing. Right. Sometimes we're in that position of having to say, what's the least bad thing I can do? Yeah. And um, I imagine for special situations like that, I think that sounds really smart. Otherwise, I would say, um, so I, and I, don't, I can't tell you, I know that's bad. I'm just telling you, hmm, makes me wonder. Yeah. But I will tell you this, because for the first half of my farming career, I didn't use black plastic mulch, which is a very common technology for, for vegetable growing. And because I was concerned that it was bad for biology. And I tell you that I asked Elaine Ingham personally what her opinion was about black plastic mulch. And she said to me, the plants grow really good. So I think it's fine. Interesting. She she didn't feel like it was, because it wasn't really like sealed off. Yeah, right. Still oxygen happening there. You know, it's on top of the ground. And she basically, she gave me, she was like, seems fine to me. And I was like, okay, that, I mean, I can't ask for a better uh, seal of approval than for Elaine Ingham to say black right. plastic mulch is not killing your ground. And off I went to the races and, and adopted using black plastic mulch. So that much I know from someone whose whole life's work is to study yeah. soil biology. So now 
black plastic mulch is just, you know, 35 inches on the top and then you're cutting holes in it all over the place to put your plants in. But still, um, I think it's about time and tightness and, um, and size. And that's the thing about a tarp being so, so big. It's like, where does all the water go? And I don't know. Yeah. But I think in your case, that sounds, I mean, I know other people that use that billboard thing. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to poo poo it. I'm just going to say, just maybe don't leave it for a very long time unless it's a dire situation, then go for it. Yeah. So we were going to talk about compost. More about compost. Yes. Let's go there. (laughs) Got off the track. (laughs) So compost is a, I'm a huge compost lover. And like I told you, my the first 15 years of my career, I was depending on cover crops and summer green manures and compost. And I learned how to make, and I made all my own. And I made really, really, really good compost with a lot of trouble and a lot of equipment. So I went to a week-long training, trained by experts from Austria. I got a turning machine and a skid loader and built a special wow. pad. And we had water put at the site and anyway so I took it like really seriously and made about 300 tons of compost a year wow so I have a lot of opinions about compost compost. (laughs) and and so here's what I would say from what I know at this point so there's there's a range of like compost is a big word it could mean many things to many people and just like um, there's different styles of yoga, right? You say like, oh, I do yoga. Well, okay, well, we have an idea that you're going to be doing, you know, a series of movements fairly slowly, and there's probably no noise, you know, right. <laughs> like, we have an idea. But there is a difference between hot yoga and kundalini yoga and hatha yoga and Iyengar and all the different flavors. And so I did a flavor of composting called controlled microbial composting cmc compost again the gurus came from austria and we're going for like super high quality very well broken down like completely broken down um and a a very highly managed process we're doing it fast because we got things to do. We want stuff to happen. And so we were, so I was making compost in about eight to 10 weeks oh, straight wow. from, from manure. Yeah. Yeah. From manure leaves and hay into beautiful black gold, d- beautiful in 10 weeks, but that takes a lot of work and that's not everybody's style. So compost can mean, can have come through so many different ways um, and, and it could be different ages and it has different ingredients and it was mixed or it wasn't mixed. And so it's hard to say that everything that has the word compost on it is awesome because there's some bad compost out there. That's just true. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the, my theory of compost for me, compost was a biological amendment. That was the whole point. Okay. I was, it wasn't about nutrition. It wasn't about minerals. It was about life. And 
um, you know, what we used to call humus, which we can't even say that word anymore, um, you know, this extremely highly broken down organic matter and the critters that live there. And that's what I want to deliver, like medicine, like a vitamin, like, like medicine. Yeah. But all composts aren't going to be that way, depending on all of those other things. So there's some caretaking that has to happen if you want it to be a biological amendment. If you just need organic matter, you just need stuff to keep the weeds from growing, you know, and then and it can be really wood chippy. Right. Then that's a different goal that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's almost more like a mulch situation yeah, there. It's really yeah. like a mulch right. situation. So exactly. when so the one of the, you know, I'm sure you know, one of the favorite methods of no-till um, farming small scale is the deep mulch system. So that, you know, in that case, you're, you know, supposed to put lots of car or lots of um, compost on tops of cardboard or whatever. But in that situation, that compost is not really acting as a as a biostimulant the way you're talking about what yours did. Is that correct? Like it seems that's it's, more it like could, it's probably somewhere in between, you between, know, and again, okay. depending on, you know, how old those wood chips are and all that stuff, you know, and was it blended with any other ingredients and how thick is the layer and so forth. So I, I just would say, unfortunately, you know, you're going to have to figure it out. You know, you're going to have to investigate like what, what's up with the source that you're getting your stuff from. I see a lot around here of compost, commercially available compost, that's basically food waste and wood chips. And you know what? I don't think I'd spend a penny on it. Really? Really? I think that's what's available in a lot of municipal kind of areas, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And they aren't taking it to the final step. It's like, it's like they're, they stop kind of in the middle and compost really needs to cure. It needs to sit a while oh. and get itself together and then it can be used it's too young and it's too wood chippy is my opinion for the okay. crops that i i want to grow um you know i actually had somebody give me some of that compost from a place here in dc and i just thought if i had to spend money on this i would be sad like this is like wood chips with like brown paint on them like this oh. I don't think this does not make me happy at all. This doesn't look life-giving. Yeah, to me. yeah. It looks just like mulch. Yeah. yeah. So, could you get? Do Do you think for those of us that don't have many alternative? Because I've I've tried to make not tried. I have made my own compost in the past, but I have so many other things to do and not the space to do it in. And yeah. and in the end, it just is like I do cold composting by default now. But you know, I it, it just wasn't feasible for me to make my own. And the only stuff that is available to me is pretty much along those lines. Yeah. So if I bring in a truckload and I just let it sit for a year, or could I add stuff to it in my own time? Like would that help? Are there things I think it would be great. Okay. Even if you just let it sit for a year. Like when it comes to you, it's just too dang fresh. I mean, it's almost, it's still hot. It's still too hot. It smells weird. Yeah. Like just if you had enough space that you could just let it sit there for a year, I think it would be awesome. Okay. Okay. And should we, should, should um, people that have that situation just mix in some minerals too, like rock phosphate or anything like that, or it's just really it hard. It's really hard to mix things into compost yeah. unless yeah. you have fairly sophisticated equipment. Yeah. I did it because I had a compost turner, but I don't know how else, I don't know how you would really do it well by hand. I think you'd have to just do it in separate 
you know, separate events. I'm going to put the compost on. Now I'm going to bring some rock powder and lay that on top, you know, like make a sandwich out there and then either till it in or not till it in. I don't know, whatever it is you're going to do. But I don't know. I just don't understand exactly how people think that they're going to change the pH or they're going to, you know, that rock phosphate's ever going to get broken down if it's just sitting on top of the ground. You know, I know earthworms go and bring things down, but like we're, we're trying to affect quite a slice. So if at my farm currently, I am, I will, you know, um, broadcast whatever um, amendments across the soil. Um, Then I'll broad fork twice up and down the bed and then I'll use a hard rake and really it's not, you know, it's a type of tillage, but it's not like, inverting anything and just really scratching the top, you know, to loosen that up so that, and then we put compost on top of that. Um, And so I was wondering if that, do you feel that's enough um, of working it in? I'm still pretty young at this, you know, pretty new at this whole process that I've developed (laughs) over the past couple of years. Uh And, and I think there's, I definitely think biology is coming to my soil now after um, what felt like a really stuttering start. But I do wonder if that, because I'm not mixing it more, if that's that's been a, a hurdle or... What do you think? I mean, I what's know. your experience? Is is Does the soil feel or seem any different to you it's, in two oh, years? It's beautiful now. Yeah, it is, it is actually really gorgeous. Um, loamy light it feel like when I look at it I can you know you can just kind of sense the energy in it I think and is the best way to put it at this point so I know that it's it's come a long way it's definitely you know spiraling upward but I still wonder if I'm going I am now very hesitant where I'm like wait for so many years I assumed I was doing the right thing I know (laughs) And so now my only mantra is never assume anything, you know, like, I'm okay, so I'm doing this, I'm observing, it looks like it's getting better. But I want to ask some great minds who have been yeah. doing this for a long time, if they think, you know, like, what am I missing? Because I was very much missing something for a long time yeah. in my process. Well, I think that's a great question. And, and good on you to admit sort of your, you know, that you have now brought doubt into yes. your farm, into your farming world. I think it's important. And, yeah, I think it's important. And, but I want to give you access that you, your experience of the farm and the crops that are growing there, that's the real measure. Soil test is one little snapshot about one little thing called soil chemistry. What really matters is, are you getting the crops that you want in the quantity and quality that you need? Are, is your stuff happy? Are the plants happy and doing well? Well, that, who cares what else is happening? <laughs> I mean, as long as we know you're not putting down something weird and poisonous and yeah, terrible, yeah. like that's the proof is in the pudding. So yeah. if your pudding is good, then I say rock on, keep, keep doing going. that. Yeah. Okay. That's unless it's killing you, unless it's killing you. Unless it's too expensive, it's too much work. I mean, as your soil is getting better and better, you should be able to get away with doing less work. I'm hoping that's what this coming season is going to (laughs) be. Right, right. And so it's important to think about from just from a nutrient standpoint, what are you selling off the farm? Like, what are you exporting? 
in terms yeah, of flowers. Nutrients. Yeah, yeah. It not, takes a lot. Know, it's a lot of stem length, a lot of leaves. Yeah, there's a lot leaving. Yeah. Okay. So you think about how much stuff is leaving, then make sure whatever you bring back that much stuff, right? You know, imagine that you are a forest, an eastern uh, climax oak forest. Everything that comes out into that tree as leaves then falls back down and is recycled. So, but we're farming. That means we're selling something off the farm. You need to bring back as much as you sent away in what, in some other, whatever form, you know, and so that's how, that's how you can complete your circle. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'm getting better at that over time. And I think, yeah. I think, I, I don't know if we have time to talk about soil tests in general, but I, I, I think also learning to sort of doubt my soil test, not doubt it, but like question soil tests and, 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 and not just go with the recommendations that the lab says or anything yeah, like that has been a huge that. piece. Yeah. Don't do what they say. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's unnerving. I know. Maybe we have to have like a whole nother podcast about soil tests. Uh, debunking or whatever it's just well I think yeah I'd be glad to do that for you I mean it's something I've done before and it's a whole like I what what I think would be the most fun is that you and I go over your soil test together okay on the on the podcast and then oh, it's me, I love that. it's like having a little lesson about what all these categories are and why do yeah. we care yeah and then what we come up with is now what are we going to do about it right Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, so I, yeah, that could be a whole other that. story. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. But re- um, so we were at the proof is in the pudding. Yes. The yes. proof is in the pudding. If your stuff is growing good, you're not overcome by diseases and pests. You're getting the quantity and quality of product that you need. I'm happy. Okay. Don't, don't go ahead and be happy. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Well, that's that. Uh, that makes me happy to hear. I, um, I, yeah. I, I hope it's it's working out. So, what else do you feel that newer growers who are starting down this road, particularly with flower farming, is there anything you really wish you could tell them that they need to to think about as they're approaching their soils? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, and it's a little, it's sort of like the first half of your question. So, something, and it goes back to what I just said. The proof is in the pudding. Yeah. The 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 soft spot, the weakness of new growers is that they don't know what good pudding is. Mm. Right. So how do they know how their stuff, their stuff is like, well, there's right. things out know, there seems good to me, but because they've not seen what a good thing yeah. looks like. Yeah. And so my advice is as much as you possibly can go see other people's places and that will give you more I, more of an idea about what the spectrum is between, oh yeah, I have plants, but they don't look like Jenny's. Holy crap. Those plants, did you see how big they were? Did you see the stem size or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> that we talk about in flowers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she has to use three layers of Hortnova to keep those suckers from falling over or whatever it is. And so that's a big issue with new growers. Yeah. Is, yeah. They don't know what good is. Yeah, they don't have a reference point yet. So right. get some reference right. points. Yeah. So that so the, the only two ways to change that are get thee to somebody else's farm or get somebody else's eyeballs onto your farm. Have somebody who knows something come and see your stuff and just, you know, tuck your ego away and get real. 
And that could be any other grower. It could be, you know, that's what extension agents are supposed to be for. They're, they're people who've been around, they're trained professionals. They've seen a million plots and acres and backyards or whatever. Get somebody to look at your stuff and tell you where is it in the spectrum of possibility. So that's what I would say about that. Um, I would encourage new growers to get a soil test because we really okay. do want to have a sense of what are you, what's your starting place. Okay. And, and always we're going to remember that a soil test is just a chemistry test. It's not a biology test and it's not a physical test. Do you think the ones that you can get from the extension agent or, or extension agency or fine or Penn state or, you know, like are the, the, um, some are all right. And some, some but generally some. speaking, do you have a, a recommendation for a lab that maybe is good to use for flower farmers who don't have a place? There's lots of labs that are good. Um, sort of one that's nationwide is called Waypoint Labs and they have good tests, good results. They show it in a very meaningful way. They use color to help you like grok it. And then um, I personally, my favorite is Midwest Labs. They're in Nebraska. And so if I'm working with a grower who doesn't have a history with some other lab, I say go to Midwest. They're my favorite. Okay, um, great. But Waypoint is great. There's some other ones, you know, there are some university labs that are great. I think Penn State is pretty good. I think um, somebody else in New England, I can't remember who. Cornell does, I think, a fairly decent one. It's probably Cornell. Yeah. But many state labs are just not testing enough things. Yeah. Yeah. And state labs, if you're an organic-ish grower and you're not going to use a conventional fertilizer, then basically they have nothing to say to you. They don't know how, they cannot speak your language. And so there's no point in even asking what the recommendation is, it's trash. And that's how come I have a job because <laughs> I'm going to take those numbers and I'm going to trans, we're going to translate it into language that both you and I understand. Right. And then we're going to go shopping. Right. For what things can we get that, that are going to help your soil and that you can deal with like physically that your body and your truck and your equipment will actually be able to accomplish. And so that's why I have a job. <laughs> nice. Nice. So people can hire you for the record. They can hire you to look yes. at their soil and interpret their sure. soil tests. Yeah. And your extension agent may be able to help you. Of course. I mean, they're trained in this stuff too. So we want to know what's the, what are you starting with? What's the chemistry and you're not going to get a sense of biology, probably, but let's get a sense of the physicality of the soil. Like go out there and start digging around. Like take a look at it. How hard is it to get the shovel in? How, what colors are that, that you, do you see? What color is the soil? What does it smell like? Does it smell good? Does it smell earthy and alive? Do you see worms? Um, how far down can you go before you hit something weird? Is there a pan and then you, it gets better on the other side of that? Um, how healthy are the things that are growing there if it's not just a lawn? Um, so that would give you some, some other senses of what's going on. And I guess the other advice would be go slow if you can. If you're really starting from not knowing very much, just don't put a huge amount of economic pressure on success on having to succeed right out of the gate that's just that's a dangerous setup yeah and it's dressy and it can make you make bad decisions and just makes your heart ache 
So if you can kind of, you know, give yourself even a year, if you could, to kind of get that soil, get your systems, get things happening before you have to have money coming in. That would be my favorite thing. Yeah, <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, don't quit your day job yet. But I don't think many flower farmers are quitting their day jobs just yet. Hopefully with time. But <laughs> Did you do both at one time yourself? Some day jobs, some flower jobs? No, job? I, I'm actually probably your biggest nightmare. I jumped ship <gasps> cold turkey and uh, went all in um, all at once. Uh, but I, you know, I had been farming for, as a kid, you know, had a farming background, right. had a horticulture degree. And so I, I knew what I was doing, but yeah, I didn't t- keep that safety net <laughs> Yeah, for better or for worse. Good. What else? Yeah. We don't want to miss too many other questions. What yeah, I, I know. I so well, let's really quick while we're talking about soil and soil testing and all of that. One thing I wanted to hit on was pH and how it fluctuates and it fluctuates a lot. And I know it's super important to how much, you know, plants can take up from um, the soil and all that but let's I just want to hear your thoughts on pH and how much like um, um, importance new growers should put on that in particular ones that are like you know just getting their first pH reading and say it's coming back at um, 6.2 is that like oh my god or like it's going to be okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So pH is the measure, basically the measurement of hydrogen ions in the soil and high. And, and so, and the scale is on, you know, from one to 12 where anything in seven being the middle, why is seven the middle when it's one to 12? I don't know. I never Must be one to 14. That doesn't really make sense. Anyway, seven is considered neutral. Everything below seven is acid. Everything above seven is alkaline. And in most vegetable crops, and I would say most annual flowers, which are basically vegetables, um, I think the sweet spot is right between 6.5 and 7, somewhere 6.8, anywhere in the upper sixes. We really don't like going over 7. And why is that? So what, why do we care about pH for a couple reasons? as growers, we care about nutrient availability. And as the pH changes away from that sweet spot in either direction, various plant minerals become tied up in the soil from a chemistry perspective and the plant can't get what it needs. So we care about nutrient availability and we care about biology. And if we want to have teeming biology, and particularly in the bacterially dominated soil, which is what we are going to have, what we want for vegetables and most annual plants, bacteria is what drives the show. They really do better in a pH in the sixes. If you're, you know, if you're growing woodies, you know, hydrangeas, and ilex and I don't know whatever all that crazy stuff is yeah. you guys grow. Viburnum. Viburnums. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Yeah, right. They're, a, you know, they're shrubs. And they want and fungal activity. High, they want fungally fungal. dominated yeah. soil. And fungus are better in a lower, they're fine in a lower pH. So that's more like being in a forest. And so then you can be in the, in probably from mid five to mid six and everything's totally super. Um, so it just depends on what you're growing with that by those two classifications. Is it a woody perennial? Is it um, 
uh, an herbaceous or uh, herbaceous perennial or annual, I think would be, I would put them together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we care about pH. So if, and, and when you said pH changes a lot or changes quickly, I would say, huh, that's not my experience unless you're adding a ton of compost. <laughs> Or a ton well, of anything. I, I have done that, but no, I, I've been I've been reading up on this, and one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about it was that there are different people in the books that I've been reading that are talking about how pH will fluctuate in a in the same spot within the course of a year based on um, how the plant is producing, or based on I guess sometimes if um, it's been really rainy or not really rainy or things mm-hmm. like that. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. And it was part of the reason I was um, picking your brain about this, whether okay. you felt the same way or whether you think pH in a given spot in the soil is fairly stable um, throughout time. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to give you two answers. One of them is I've never measured the pH in the same spot more than once a year. So I don't know the answer to how much it changes over the course of one season. Okay. But what I do know is that I want you to do soil tests around the same time every year, whatever time it is that works for you. I don't care what it is, but do the same thing. Okay. And normally it's normal for farmers to test in the fall and then prepare for next year with that soil test, but whatever it is, do it around the same time every year. And unless you are adding a whole bunch of some ingredient that has a very different pH than the soil, it should be fairly stable in the same place. Now, anybody who's, like I said, anybody who's east of the Mississippi and is on soils that are acidic soils and you've limed them to bring them up into a better pH, they are very slowly going to go back to where they came from. They are going to very slowly acidify over the course of three-ish years. You might be back to, you'll lose you know, you'll go from six, seven to six, three, six, two, and then it's time to lime again. So we're, we're kind of asking that soil to be in a place it doesn't really naturally want to be. Um, but as you increase organic matter in your soils and all this liveliness that we're hoping that you're bringing with good food, good drinks, you know, and, uh, and good dance music, um, <laughs> having really active biology and lots of organic matter tends to keep you in that sweet spot. Tends oh, to good keep to know. The sixes, middle sixes anyway. Okay. So because, it'll bring balance to the pH as well. Okay. Yes. It should make it even slower to, okay. to go t- back towards um, acid. Okay. Now let me ask you this since we just hit on that with the lime, you know, or anything I asked you um, already in an email about this, uh, when I'm curious if you have an opinion or no, what happens when we add these amendments that are necessary to adjust pH or for whatever reason, how does that hit soil biology? You know, if I've worked so hard to bring up this, you know, level of activity in my soil, and then I go and I douse it with some high cal lime, that's got to be a shock, right? I mean, it has to shock them in some way. <laughs> is there is there 
are there better amendments than other ones for biology or maybe I'm just being too concerned about it and it's part of my doubting process that I've got going uh -huh. on. <laughs> uh -huh. um, no, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And there's definitely uh, sort of categories of benignness, shall we say, okay. of amendments. And by and large, if you're using organic or, you know, in, in sort of the organic realm, basically there's nothing you can do that's going to piss anybody off, except oh, okay. for put out like a lot of elemental sulfur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Other than that, um, they're not biologically unfriendly. Okay. They don't kill things. Okay. And, and that's really the, the issue with, with conventional fertilizers. Some of them are really harsh because they're super salty or they're, they're just biologically unfriendly. And, and then in the realm of conventional fertility, there are some that are better and worse than others. Okay. And so once you kind of cross over into the organic amendments, which are all, you know, naturally derived, um, there's, there's, there's really, I can't think of anything that I would say, oh yeah, that's a little rough. Even That's like boron, I keep hearing like, I think oh, I need to add boron, but then I'm so scared because everybody's like, be careful with boron. Yes, but that's <laughs> not because that's not because the boron is killing your microbes. You have to be careful with boron because the amount of boron that your plants need is very small amount. Okay. It's okay. not because it's killing things. It's because the plants only need so much. And if you put too much, then it's toxic to them. So it's not about the biology piece. It's that's a chemistry piece and boron is tremendously important and you only need a little bit. And so it's th the opposite of, and this is an issue that new growers often get into. Well, if a little compost is good and a lot of compost is better, isn't that the same with boron? And the answer is no, it's not the same. <laughs> you know, all of those fertilizers, like too much is just as bad as too little. Yeah, I, I have to confess, I totally did that in my farm because I've always used organic amendments and I always like in the beginning thought, well, you know, I've got a 50 pound bag and it only said I needed 10 pounds, but oh, whatever. I mean, you know, more has got to be better, right? Right. <laughs> I'm paying right. the price now. <laughs> yeah. Did a few Good. Things. But figure out, you should figure out how to get boron happening. Yeah, if I think that's an, an issue. If your soils are testing low, which they probably are, pretty yeah. much everybody on the eastern seaboard has yeah. got low boron, and it moves with water. Oh, so it's going to leach out. Super okay. mobile. Yep. And so, so what, I, what would I, be your recommendations would, for that? Yeah, I use put out boron every year on my farm, but I'm only putting out um, two pounds an acre. How do you even do two pounds an acre? That's like, why <laughs> micronutrients are tricky. Right. So it's two pounds of actual boron, uh, which is different than two pounds. I'm not saying two pounds of borax. Right, it turns right. out to be 20 pounds of borax okay. of, of, of or whatever it is, borax. Yeah, it's got like a filler kind of thing in it. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And even that is really hard. That's not <laughs> really any easier than two pounds. And you so just take a this, salt shaker around. It just yes. <laughs> that's what I don't do that. I, I had enough acreage. I could buy a really great product that, that is called microhume comes out of Midwestern bioag. That is a mix of boron, zinc, manganese, and copper. All four, they're sort of the four big micros. And it has them blended all together and, and 
coated in, in uh, Humates. And it's a super great product. And it's the only one I know of that is a mix of those. Otherwise, it's one at a time. And you could do, um, I have a friend who uses a Parmesan cheese shaker. That's how she puts boron on her bed. She does a, like it's a pizza. Yeah. Um, or boron is very commonly put out as a liquid, as a fully, as a one time or twice foliar. Mm-hmm. But boron is, is, it needs a little more press than it gets. It's important. It really helps nutrients get around the plant. It helps with nutrient transport inside the plant system. It's a really good one. But uh, too much is terrible. Oh, well, that's what I like. I've steered clear of it because it sounded so like good. terrifying. But, but I think I you are think... qualified to <laughs> dip your toe in the water. Go for it. I like it. So that, that microhume, I'm going to link to that in the show notes in case anybody listening wants to, to see it too. And are there any... Um, well, I'm thinking of it. Do you have recommendations for where people can buy good amendments? Like I know I use Fertrell here in Pennsylvania. Is there yep. anywhere else just to give people who are new and don't even know where to start some ideas? Yeah, it's just different everywhere in the country. You know, Fertrell is great. Um, Midwestern Bioag is great. If you're in the upper, you know, in the Midwest, I have people, I have customers in New Orleans that are that are shipping stuff from Wisconsin just because it's such good product. Um, New England has lots of choices because they've been organic farmers for longer than anybody else. And so there's all, you know, it's really easy to find good products there. Um, You know, there's some nature safe products. There's a company in Virginia called Seven Springs Farm Farm Supply that'll ship to anywhere in the West Coast. You know, there's some good organic stuff way out, you know, Portland, Seattle, and ship east from that way. California, of course, is its own universe. But there are, um, so you kind of have to see what's in your hood, or you're going to spend a lot on shipping. Yeah, yeah. But that's sort of part of part of what I do when I work with people is I say, where do you want to spend your money? Who do you want to shop with? And then I actually get on the phone with whoever that place is. And I'm like, what do you got that's going to do this, this and this? Ah. And, and like, can you send me the analysis? Because I want to know more. I don't want to just know NPK. I want to know about magnesium, sulfur, calcium. Like, give me more information. Um, so you're a personal so shopper for, for I am a personal uh, fertilizer amazing. shopper. Yeah. <laughs> Sign it's it up. A, it's a crazy service, but it's, <laughs> but it's important. Because oh, it's huge. It, take, it makes the difference for everything. If you start with that foundation, then all the rest of it is so much easier. Then you don't have to pay as much for any sort of pesticides or, you know, or, organic Absolutely. ideally, but like you don't have to worry about bug pressure and all the rest. So it's, it's, it's worth every penny. I'm absolutely sure yeah. of that. Yeah. So yeah, there's some brands out there, but you got to, you got to look around. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So before I will, we'll wrap up here, but I could talk all day, obviously. Um, but no, I, think, <laughs> I think I could keep up with you. <laughs> I know. I love it. We'll just, we're definitely doing this again, obviously. Um, but one, one thing I wanted you to do is tell people about the book that you have um, and, and what it's about so that they know if they want to hear more from you, they can. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at selling my, the, my one product <laughs> that is an actual item. Yeah. So um, a few years back, um, a colleague of mine and friend, Forrest Pritchard, he's a, he's a livestock grower. We used to, we went to the same farmer's markets for 20 years in a row and our pals, he said to me one day, 
don't you want to write this book with me? I have this <laughs> idea for a book and, and I think it's going to be called Start Your Farm. And I think you should write it with me. And I was like, what? You're crazy. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> and then he started talking to me about it because he, I was like, oh, I don't want to work. I don't want to talk just to new growers and I don't want to tell people how to start a farm. That's just, there's just too many details too hard. And he's like, no, that's not the book I'm talking about. I want to talk to people about how to think about having a farm. Oh, interesting. So it's not a nuts and bolts. It's not a technology. It's not a how to, we don't tell you how to grow any plants or animals. What we're talking about is what kind of mindset do you need to get into in order to be a business owner, in order to become a people manager, in order to become a producer. And so we tackle those kinds of issues, economics, relationships, how is your family going to play in a little bit, a little tiny chapter on soils that I was stressed (laughs) out, like crazy to write. So it's more like it's not about how to, it's about, huh, thinking about how I, how do I want to set this up so that it works for me and how am I going to sell some stuff? So it's, it's a whole different idea about starting a farm. That, that sounds like, I didn't realize that what it was the premise of it. And now I'm going to totally have to buy it because I, I find <laughs> that to be such an incredibly needed conversation in the farming community, especially right now. Uh, and for anybody listening, this is in no way meant to be a, um, uh, um, a an unwelcoming statement to those of you who are just uh, entering the farming world. But I think with COVID, especially in the flower farming community, there's a lot new growers coming to flower farming yes. because of COVID. They had time to be at home um, and look at their property and see the potential of it. And I think that's a wonderful, you know, silver lining of COVID. But what it also means is a lot of people are getting into farming without having spent time thinking about those things that your book is clearly about. And so I think now I want to read it so I can tell anybody who's like, you know, getting in, dipping their toe into the pool to, um, to have a look at that because it sounds like incredibly valuable, um, just philosophical, you know, looking into your heart kind of moment. Yeah. It makes you think because just because you like to be a gardener or you're good at it is not the same as having a business. Yeah. growing growing things it's just two completely different things and so we just that's what it is it's like all the things we wish somebody would say to people who want to get started that's not like you know you should use this kind of a chicken waterer you know yeah Yeah. we've (laughs) got plenty of books like that (laughs) yeah so we went we went back and forth each chapter is by we each wrote different chapters and they go back and forth and he's an animal and he guy and he's a guy and I'm a vegetable girl and I'm a girl and and so we have it's sort of an interesting blend of of um those energies and yeah so that's the book and it's you know it's on the usual at the usual usual. places yeah yeah well we'll link to it too um in the show notes so people can find it and I'm excited to read it do you think it will apply to people that maybe have been growing for a few years or is it more like before you start yeah no I've I've had we've had lots of people that are already in like three four years in and they're like oh this is very (laughs) helpful because they're still you know they're really probably thinking about making changes like you know, either this is kind of not working for me or I want to get bigger. 
And so it's almost brings in that same set of questions like, well, why do you want to get bigger? And what's, what would scale mean to you? And what is that going to mean to your family? And what's that going to mean to your quality of life? And what's that going to mean economically and blah, 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 all that stuff. Oh, it sounds, it sounds incredibly valuable. I'm so glad it's you wrote pretty, that book. Um, it's easy to digest. You know, For, Forrest is a super good writer. I'm a medium good writer. And we're pretty, we use very familiar language. So it's, it's quite edible. Yeah, nice. I like it. I like it a lot. So cool. Well, this has been such a gem. I'm so excited to get this out into the world for others to hear. I feel like I... I've clearly made a new kindred spirit friend here. So yes, <laughs> it's really fun. More, more talks about this. Um, and I promise we're, I'm definitely going to get you back on to talk um, about a soil, a specific soil test example. I think that would be hugely helpful to everybody. So thank you so much for your time, Ellen. It has just welcome. been such a treat. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope the world goes swimmingly for you in this coming spring <laughs> when we have no idea what's ahead of us. That's right. Well, thanks, Jenny. It's always fun to be with someone who's excited. You're obviously an excited person, and especially that you are falling in love with soil microbes. I am so falling so in love special. with soil. So welcome, <laughs> welcome to the club. It's good to have you, and I be, I want to talk soil nerd with you anytime. Yay, and it'll be so you fun. Too. Good luck. Have a restful winter, and Thank we'll talk you. again soon. Yeah, you as well. All right. Bye, Ellen. Bye-bye. <laughs> Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.